You're listening to In Country, a podcast covering Marvel Comics, The Nom. Welcome to episode 91 of In Country, the podcast that is taking a complete look at the Marvel Comics series, The Nom, which is brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm your host, Tom Panneries. This time around, I'm continuing on my regular coverage of the series in the history of the Vietnam War with issue number 80, and a look at the spring of 1973 with coverage of the months April, May, and June. I'm also going to take a look at some comedic portrayals of the Vietnam War courtesy of our favorite family. The song this time around is Tie a Yellow Ribbon Round the Old Oak Tree by Tony Orlando and Dawn, a song that hit number one on the Billboard Hot 100 for four weeks at the end of April and in May of 1973. The song is actually appropriate for our podcast here because it plays upon the tradition of wearing or displaying a yellow ribbon to represent you have a loved one who is away in the military. The idea is said to have originated in the 19th century when young women wore yellow ribbons in their hair to represent men they loved serving the 1st Cavalry. Orlando's song isn't necessarily about a soldier either, but of someone who has been away for a long time and is now on his way home and is wondering if the woman he loves remembers him. If you're familiar with the song, you know what she does because when she comes home there are a hundred yellow ribbons around the oak tree. As I mentioned, the song was a huge hit for Tony Orlando and Dawn. It's probably their most famous next to their other hit, Knock Three Times. This song charted in 1973, but it also saw renewed interest in airplay during 1981, toward the end of the Iranian hostage crisis. I remember hearing it on the radio quite a bit in 1990 and 1991 during Operations Desert Shield and Desert Storm. Of course, in the early 2000s, cars displaying yellow magnetic ribbons that say support our troops were ubiquitous, though I don't know if the song got played as much on the radio. Now, on to our comic, which is issue number 80 of the NOM. It had a May 1993 cover date. It was released on March 30th, 1993. The cover is by Michael Golden, and it's the second of three interconnecting covers that make up the storyline the beginning of the end. This one shows a tank firing, soldiers using the tank for covers, and civilians cowering in fright beneath it. Felt, I like it more than the last issue's cover because it has its fair share of action. It's really quite detailed, too, which is what you would expect out of someone like Golden, who has always had a solid amount of detail in his work. 
It is a little busy though, especially because the other two covers have figures who are front and center and draw the eye in, but when you put it between the covers for issues 79 and 81, it makes a nice middle piece to the triptych. Our story is Tet, the beginning of the end, part two, House to House, and our creative team is Don Lomax, writer, Wayne Van Zant, artist, Phil Felix, letterer, John Calise, colorist, and the edits were Tui, Daly, and DeFalco. We open on May 6, 1972. The new last line of defense for the bloodied, cringing South Vietnamese army is now located on the south bank of the Mai Khan River, roughly halfway between Hue and the enemy-held city of Quang Tri. Ed and Bulldog are still there, and Ed is urging Bulldog to continue telling his stories about Tet. If you remember, Bulldog had been at the U.S. Embassy during the Tet Offensive and had helped secure it after it was overrun by the VC. Ed wants to know if Bulldog had headed back to MACV after the, after the Embassy, and Bulldog says that he didn't and, didn't and was therefore technically AWOL. But then again, the offensive was everywhere, and people were being hit from all sides. Bulldog then begins to talk about how important Tet was to the Vietnamese, and that the Viet Cong had bought the propaganda put out in Hanoi that they were told it was a liberation, that they told the South Vietnamese would rise to fight beside them, and that didn't happen. The propaganda bid by the communists to overrun and hold the embassy failed, and it was a small, insignificant attack, but when the American media finished reporting of it, you'd have thought that, according to Bulldog, Nathaniel Victor was holding Lyndon Johnson hostage in the White House. Bulldog is briefed back at MACV, talking about how there were offenses being launched all over the country, more troops were being added, and he goes into what was actually going on right outside of Saigon, saying a large enemy force commits itself to a sizable assault on this huge supply complex of Long Bin, 15 miles out of North Sea Saigon. It soon becomes obvious that Charlie has bitten off a little more than he can chew. So what we are getting here, essentially, is a view of how the Tet Offensive was a little bit more of a military failure compared to say what was portrayed in the media at least according to bulldog he is he continues to get brief and he talks about how the Viet Cong is actually suffering heavy losses throughout the entire campaign the local police civilian police precinct works better than people thought but the Viet Cong hold on and they eventually reach a essentially a stalemate we turn our attention then to Kolon, the Chinese section of Saigon, and Bulldog says, Like every other war, the hard work of dislodging the well-dug-in, highly-motivated enemy falls to the people used to getting the short end of the stick, the grunts. Bone-tired, war-weary, dirty, smelly, short on ammo, food and water, and sleep, they are not short on guts training and fighting spirit. The more adverse the hardships, the more ill-tempered the grunts become. They stand toe-to-toe -to -toe with the beast, and they kick it in the groin every chance they get. And day after day, in dawn to dusk, fighting fighting only sharpens their combat skills. And we see scenes of grunts raiding a village, throwing grenades, and trying to smoke out various Viet Cong troops. He says, since the first day of the assault, the Americans methodically moved forward, house to house, clearing the neighborhood after neighborhood. Used to fighting hit-and-run ambushes and terrorizing civilians in the boonies, the Viet Cong had no experience fighting in the street, and Victor Charles was like a fish out of water. He's saying that this is basically being worked to their advantage. They eventually go from house to house, finding people, shooting who they can, and come across a 
woman who is tied up in the corner of a room, but instead of being able to uh, rescue her, they find that she is wired possibly to, to blow. They do manage to get her disabled without setting something off, and it says, we took her to a forward field hospital a few blocks away. She'd been kept in those animals' private playthings since that first night. He says, I was personally sorry that they had died that quickly. If they had taken a week to die, they wouldn't have suffered as much as what they had put her through. And she tells them that the Viet Cong came into their neighborhood a couple of hours before dawn, shouting they had to come to liberate Saigon from the imperialist American pigs. And when the civilians failed to rally behind their captive, their comrade, quote, liberators, the Viet Cong went nuts. They dragged the girl's mother, father, and brother into the street. And when they found a South Vietnamese flag in the house, all but the little girl were beheaded on the spot. And we get sort of pictures of this. They are in what is called the China, this Chinatown section of Saigon, and, and bodies are everywhere. They continue to move. A tank comes down. It fires into buildings, and then they would go out after the tank clears things out. But then the tank hits a landmine, or what looks like a landmine, and the lead track is blown. It is essentially a piece of junk. They get the crew out of there, and they continue on their way. So they get to a cemetery, and they are with people who, uh, they were Vietnamese citizens who were working with them, and, and the one they're working with him knows the cemetery. He says there's a ditch 75 meters to the right that leads all the way to the river, and with any luck, they can flank the position that way. They have another tank in the area. It's firing back 90 millimeter HE rounds into the graveyard, but there's no little effect. The Viet Cong essentially have it, and they're digging in. So they, uh, they go for that ditch, but it wasn't covered, so it's very helpful to them. It's kind of a mistake that Charlie made, according to Bulldog. And when they get there, guy he's with is upset to find a family member's grave having been disturbed. He looks face to face with the skull, and then they start pouring on the ammunition. I apologize. The name of the guy is is Non. Non is more or less paralyzed through the shock of seeing uh, what he eventually tells Bulldog is his father, but he eventually gets out of it, and they are able to um, stave off the Viet Cong, ending the cemetery battle, and then they had to uh, move on to the next place. But before they leave, Bulldog sees Non. Non tells him that he's looking at the skull of his father, and he says, Vietnam, if it couldn't break a man one way, it would surely, most surely another. We conclude with them walking out of Chinatown and moving on to the next place. He says the last holdout in Chinatown was the An Quang Pagoda. The Viet Cong were using it as a command post. With the retaking of it, the backbone of the offensive was broken. It was a couple of blocks from the pagoda when I saw this TV news crew and some Arvin with a captured Viet Cong. The instant Eddie Adams snapped his Pulitzer Prize photo of General Lone capping the Viet Cong murderer. After what I lived through the last two weeks, the incident wasn't worth a second look. It seems odd to me that one that, that one photo did more to turn public opinion against the war than any incident up to that point and since. Ed Marks says, yeah, I remember when they aired that film in the 6 o'clock news. It's hard to ignore the war when it's staring at you over your mashed potatoes. And he asks, where were you during the 68 Tet Offensive? Dai Wee and Dai Wee, who's been with them and listening the whole time, says, Hue, which is where we're going next issue. And I apologize for that sort of haphazard summary. I had originally tend to read the comic all the way through, and then I realized how much text was involved, so I was kind of improvising it there. But 
What this three-parter does is not tell us an arc-long story like, say, the death of Joe Hallen or some other multi-part storylines. That's what they do. It instead gives us another one of Bulldog's war stories. Yes, it does pick up where the last one left off, but last issue didn't necessarily end on a cliffhanger. This one doesn't either, although there is definitely some ominous in the way Dai We says way, especially since one of those of us who have been reading since the beginning of the series know of how horrific the situation in Huey is, and probably remember, remember the Doug Murray Penn story, Huey, the City of Death. What we have here, though, is less of a personal or compartmentalized story like Murray used to give us, and more of a broad-range lesson on the scope of the Tet Offensive. Bulldog spends a fair amount of time in the beginning of the story covering just how huge the offensive was and offering his commentary on how it was portrayed by both the North Vietnamese propagandists and the American media. As I've said, we can definitely debate over whether or not the Tet Offensive was a strategic or military victory for the Viet Cong or the NVA, but I think it certainly was effective in the impact it had on the opinions and morale of the American people back home. The first half or so of Bulldog's story also has a nice rhythm to it. He's not only showing us the size of the offensive, but Lomax has him relate its relentlessness and gives his speech a definite rhythm to show us that the enemy just kept coming and coming and the U.S. and Arvin forces kept pounding back and pounding back. When he takes his breath to focus on things that he saw or experienced, the place slows down, but the emotional intensity does not let up because we have the story about them rescuing the girl who was wired to a bomb and how she tells how people in her village were beheaded. Plus, we have the scene in the graveyard later on where Nan sees his father's body having been desecrated, which is a great emotional point. I don't think I did it justice in that summary, but, I mean, it's 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 really... Uh, Lomax is going for a particular impact here, and he's showing the personal toll that Vietnam was taking, or the Vietnam War was taking, on the people in the country where it was being fought. And whereas Bulldog does come off as kind of a G.I. Joe um, in this issue, in parts of la- of, and, and definitely in the last issue, it's a little bit less this issue than the last issue. Here he comes off as someone who has seen quite a bit and has a good amount of experience. Lomax makes him the center of the action in some cases but he also makes him an observer. This issue works in a big way, and I'm looking forward to seeing how Lomax brings it together with the story about Huey. The art, as always, is really good. Van Zant is keeping this book true to its origins and style, giving us some great classic war comic art in an era where art was taking a turn to this over-the-top, bombastic, crazy, jagged panel style. Vincent really uses the grid well, and it really makes for a consistently solid book that has a realistic-looking action and conveys all of the emotion that Lomax's story entails. That'll be it for this issue. I'm going to take a break, and I'll be back with historical context, letters, and ads. Great comics come in all shapes and sizes. Coming soon from the Fire & Water Podcast Network. It's Digest Cast, a new show dedicated to our beloved pocket-sized treasures from that bygone era of the 70s and 80s. Hosted by the Fire & Water podcast team of Robin Shag, and we'll be joined from time to time by special guests. It's Digest Cast, because big things come in small packages. Coming soon to the Fire & Water podcast network.
Okay, so I am looking at the spring of 1973, and this is April, May, and June. This information is coming courtesy of the History Place and Wikipedia. Throughout April 1973, President Nixon and President Tew meet at San Clemente, California. Nixon renews his earlier secret pledge to respond militarily if North Vietnam violates the standing peace agreement. On April 1st, Captain Robert White, the last known American POW, is released. On April 30th, the Watergate scandal results in the resignation of Toxic Nixon aides H.R. Haldeman and John Ehrlichman. On June 19, 1973, the United States Congress passes the Case Church Amendment, which forbids any further U.S. military involvement in Southeast Asia, effective August 15, 1973. This veto-proof vote is 278 to 124 in the House and 64 to 26 in the Senate. The amendment paves the way for North Vietnam to wage yet another invasion of the South, this time without fear of the United States bombing. And then finally, on June 24, 1973, Graham Martin becomes the new U.S. ambassador to South Vietnam. Remember, troops had essentially pulled out by then. We were more or less done with our involvement in the war, and the war was at least at a standstill or a ceasefire. So you're going to get a little bit less uh, out of the historical context for the rest of 73 and 74 up, up until we get into about 75. But let's look at letters and ads. We do have incoming this month. We start with Chris Darson of Stamford, Connecticut, who has been reading every issue. He says that things could be better. He's 12 years old. He's not old enough to have gone to Vietnam, but he learns a lot from your book and doesn't want it to ever end. His brother is a fan also, but doesn't read it all the time. Um, he says even his father is at a few issues. Uh, he says, I guess what I'm writing is I want to let you know that there are readers out there who more than respond to the book we wait each month with breath held and never disappointed uh tim tui says our younger readers are very important to us one thing we try to do with the book is make it an entertaining textbook that anyone can learn from just because an event like the vietnam war didn't directly affect those younger readers doesn't mean that they should forget it one day one of them could prevent it from happening again Mitch Kaiser of Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. He says, all in all, this is best is the best book Marvel puts out. The new stateside stories are really to be commended. He says he's getting his money worth. Uh, he says the details are far more far more than they've ever been in the long in a long time as far as uh, Wayne Van Zant's art. He says uh, he says the writing by Lomax has never been smoother. He says he bets Lomax was there in Vietnam. Either that or he's done massive amounts of research. He says, I wonder if this is going to be the team for some time to come, and please let it be the case. They respond with, yes, Mitch, Don Lomax is a Vietnam veteran, having only missed actual participation in the Tet Offensive by a couple of months. And as for Wayne Van Sant's art, check out issue 122 of Marvel Age. It's got an interview with Don, Wayne, and myself. And uh, that was the one I went through a couple of episodes ago. Devin Matler of Califon, New Jersey, says probably the only problem with having backup stories is they're not as well drawn as the main attraction, where the talent is top-notch in the main, and the backups, they've been, well, less than what I'd call perfect. I'm not saying they're terrible, but the next to the top-notch talent of Wayne Van Sant, how can anybody stack up? The stories are good. Can't Wayne do the art? Pay him more or something, but uh, by not having him do the backups, it brings down the overall book. He says, sorry, you feel the stateside stories were not as good, but our intention was to have a look at the world be very different from the book Look of In Country, and issue 83 will be tying up our stateside chapters in a 10-page finale.
Mike Pinella of Brewster, New York says, uh, you've topped yourselves again. The NOM 77 was great. And then they reply with that Don Lomax and I have a lot of fun coming up with the stateside storyline. And we're glad you look forward to it. And then David Witten of Berkeley says, I served in the Vietnam War. I saw the war in all its painful color. Don't I don't ever want to go back to that hell ever yet. I know that to forget would be wrong. Because of that, I read the nom only by remembering the pain. Can I live with it now? And Tim Tui's reply is, Amen. We do not have nom notes in the next issue box. We have a picture of the uh, cover for next issue, but we have an in-memoriam box, and it's in-memoriam for the nom. Uh, It says, as of issue number 84, the great experiment, the nom will be no more. With issue 84, the nom will end its tumultuous seven-year run from the groundbreaking first issue. This book gave us a real hardcore look at the war, which is actually America's longest war, from 1950 to 1975. A lot of talent participated in this book and no amount of thanks can show the appreciation they deserve. So well, just give them a hearty thanks. Doug Murray, Michael Golden, Armando Gill, John Beatty, Russ Heath, Bob Camp, John Severin, Jeff Isherwood, Tony DiZaniga, Chuck Dixon, Jorge Zafino, Roger Salek, Frank Percy, Mike Harris, Jimmy Palmiotti, Andy Kubert, Rod Ramos, Ron Wagner, Herb Trimpey, Kim DeMolder, Art Nichols, the, de- the debuts of Kevin Kabasik and the upcoming Alberto Saichan, and to our support crew, Bob Charon, Jade Mood, Ed Lazlari, and John Calise, and the man who has been here since issue number one, Phil Felix. If I've missed anyone, it was unintentional, and I apologize. I took over this book with issue 71, and it has been an incredible learning experience. Remember the war and Always remember our dead POW and MIA. It's not over till all our guys are back. Semper Fi, Tim Tui. Ads this month. Uh, on the inside, we have an ad for the Coneheads movie that just shows uh, Dan Aykroyd and Jane Curtin touching their heads together and saying, consume mass quantities. I heard this movie is terrible. I, From what I understand, this is actually a movie where like Michael Richards has a bit part and he was so, he like hated the movie so much he would like, tell people that he would give them their money back if he saw them and they said they'd seen it or something, but I don't know if that's an urban legend or what. There is an ad for uh, Marvel, Spider-Man, um, and X-Men games on the what looks like the Super NES, um, the NES Game Boy, and Game Gear. The flashback Quest for Identity CD-ROM game and a cartridge ga- uh, game is advertised as well. The Trade West Sports Pro Quarterback for the Genesis and Super Nintendo. Rob Dibble is our uh, guy on the Pinnacle 1993 Pinnacle by Score baseball cards. Some of these ads are repeating from last issue, which is why I'm going through them so quickly. There is a two-page spread for entertainment this month. So here we go. If you... Send something in order postmarked by 5193. You get a free unlimited Bloodstrike poster by Rob Blyfeld. Um, Bloodstrike began... Oh, God, Blood Brothers. You know, I read parts of this as part of my uncollecting blog recently. It's so bad. It's just... It's it's terrible. It's terribleness. Then you have Darker Image, which I actually do have a copy of, and or at least of number one. There were three versions of it, and you could get the set of it... Um, there it's just we are we are really in the middle of of what would eventually become the overdone comics 
boom. Um, I think we're, we're, we're headed toward the bust, really. Uh, there's the 30th anniversary of the X-Men, which is um, the Fatal Attractions storyline. This is around the time I ditched the X-Men. I think I, I went into the Fatal Attractions, the Blood Ties storylines, and then, then I was done. But X-Men Unlimited number 1 had a 64-page story on high-quality paper. It was that glossy paper that they started uh, They started doing. Let's see. We've got Youngblood Strike File. It's hot. There's a Wildcats Trade paperback. Trencher by Keith Giffen. Shaman's Tears by Mike Grell, which had like two or three issues, I think. Maybe four or five. Ruth and Darren Sutherland could probably tell me like how many issues were pub- actually published back in the 90s. I had like the first two or three. Infinity Crusade, the last installment in the Infinity Trilogy. Marvel 93 annuals have exclusive limited edition rookie cards. They are can't miss annuals. Uh, there's a Spidey versus Hobgoblin trade, a Star Wars trade for Dark Empire. There's just a lot of comics coming out now. Valiant's got like all of its things. Turok number two has Bart Sears art. You know, the, and and the thing is, like, you know, they're offering all these on a slight discount. This was this was if you go back all the way back to a few years ago, where I did the whole thing on American Entertainment this month. They were just it they were buying thousands and thousands of copies of these, like ungodly amounts of comics coming through this place, and eventually it just all fell apart. And we're we're pretty close to that point where it all falls apart. We are in. The Bulletin Bulletins. Carl Potts is doing the commentary instead of stand on the soapbox. He says that there are heavy hitter comics coming out one a week for two months. They're top quality action adventures comics created by top talents for Epic. Um, I don't think these did particularly well. Although uh, one of them is going to be by Peter David and George Perez, which I think was Sax and Violins? If I remember, I know they did Hulk Future and Perfect, but I don't think that was considered one of them. I think it was, this was epic, and it was it was that, and I don't know how long it it actually lasted. And, and it's not mentioned in there, uh, in the bullpen bulletins, actually there's an Avengers Summit to go over what was going to happen in the upcoming year, and I know that they're canceling West Coast Avengers, and I think... Oh, what the hell was the name of that? Force Works. Did that come out of this? I can't remember. I know that the I know that like right after uh, the Bloodlines cross Blood Ties crossover. Bloodlines was the crappy DC one. They would cancel West Coast Avengers. There's a role playing game ad for Rifts Heroes Unlimited and Robotech. Big generic looking subscription ad. A Crunch and Munch. Uh, Marvel trading card in a Crunch and Munch for Marvel. And then. On the back cover from Stridex, we have superheroes from a society so advanced zits are just a painful memory, sworn to fight zits wherever they find them, using the most powerful method in the galaxy. They are zit Zit fighters from from outer outer space. space. We're picking up an eruption on Earth on screen. Major Stark Planetary Records indicate it's called Mount Fuji. No, that's not Mount Fuji. It's a zit. This looks like this guy didn't use Stridex medicated pads to help prevent pimples. Load the Stridex pads. They're medicated to treat the zits this huge and prevent new ones from forming. They clean deep and eliminate excess dirt and oil. Dex, target that humongous zit. Got it, Major. Pads away. And the spaceship fires a giant Stridex pad at the Earth. 
That zit is toast. No other acne medication available without a prescription is more effective than Stridex medicated pads. We have regular strength for sensitive skin, maximum strength, oil fighting formula, and single texture pads instead of the dual texture super scrub pads. Stridex, because you only get one face. I used to use the dual pad, dual textured maximum strength pads. They smell terrible. If you jumped in a pool with Stridex on your face, the burning, the burning, the burning. But that is it for ads, and I'm going to take another break. And when I get back, I'll be back with some, well, lighter fare. Definitely not some Stridex. Stick around. I'm Captain Benjamin Sisko. Welcome to Deep Space Nine. Red alert. All crew members report to battle stations. Red alert. Shields up. What You're Starfleet officers! Now start acting like it! Oh, it's just Garrett. Plain, simple, Garrett. Dax, we might have just discovered the first stable wormhole known to exist. The wormhole does bring them our way, doesn't it? Everyone wants a piece of the new frontier. This will surely become a leading center of commerce and of scientific exploration. Starfleet one of our most important posts. Quite a motley crew you've assembled here, Benji. Listen to The Prophets, a Deep Space Nine podcast. And here are your hosts, Andrew Leyland and Paul Spataro. Bloody hell. Oh, I love a woman in uniform. Only on TwoTrueFreaks.com. So if you are familiar with that theme song, then you know that I'm going to spend some time talking about The Simpsons. And if you're familiar with The Simpsons, you probably figured out that I'm going to focus on one supporting character in particular, and that is Seymour Skinner, principal of Springfield Elementary School and Vietnam veteran. In looking at popular culture that addresses or portrays the Vietnam War, much of what I have come across has been mostly serious in nature. That probably isn't much of a shock to anyone. Most portrayals in war of our in, in our culture do tend to have a serious, sometimes even reverent tone. But there are a number of works that we use that use comedy or satire in some way when telling their war stories. I'd say that Kurt Vonnegut's Slaughterhouse Five 
probably qualifies here, although I have to admit it's been more than 20 years since I last read that novel. Joseph Heller's Catch-22, a novel that I've never actually read but do plan on reading, is often held up as the gold standard for war satire. When it comes to movies, you have a number of good examples, going back to Chaplin's The Great Dictator, to Kubrick's Dr. Strangelove, the Clint Eastwood flick Kelly's Heroes, and more recent movies like Tropic Thunder. As far as Vietnam is concerned, I did already do an episode about what is probably the most famous Vietnam War-related comedy, Good Morning Vietnam. There aren't too many others, though. Mel Gibson and Robert Downey Jr. starred in Air America, which is about two pilots that are running operations in Laos and who discover they have been unknowingly part of a heroin smuggling operation, and the plot centers around their trying not to get framed for drug smuggling. Funny enough, by the way, Air America was a plot point in another Mel Gibson film, Lethal Weapon. But beyond that and some of the more comedic beats in Forrest Gump, there's not much in the way of comedy. Well, except for one of my favorite lines from Dazed and Confused. It's like our sergeant told us before one trip into the jungle. Men, 50 of you are leaving on a mission. 25 of you ain't coming back. Enter the Simpsons. The show premiered in 1989 after a number of shorts in the Tracy Ullman show on Fox. The Christmas special Simpsons Roasting on an Open Fire is considered the show's first episode with Bart the Genius, the first half-hour episode airing in January of 1990. Principal Skinner was in both Simpsons Roasting on an Open Fire and Bart the Genius, and in his first appearances was basically presented as an adversary for Bart, who at the show's beginning was the breakout character, although he'd soon be eclipsed by Homer. One of the earliest episodes to give Skinner more depth is Season 2, Episode 14, Principal Charming. This is the one where he falls in love with Marge's sister, Patty. Skinner's military career and service in Vietnam is something that gets developed later over time through small scenes and subplots, and I'm going to talk about a number of my favorites up until Season 9. Why Season 9? Well, two reasons. I actually stopped watching the show about season 12, so I can't tell you anything that's happened in the season since like the early to mid-2000s. Secondly, season 9 has the infamous episode called The Principle of the Pauper. In this episode, Martin Sheen plays Seymour Skinner, the real Seymour Skinner. It seems that Seymour Skinner that we know was actually a punk kid named Armin Tanzarian. Tanzarian wound up in the army in Vietnam. He was mentored by the real Seymour Skinner. And when Skinner was declared MIA, Tanzarian basically took over his life. All of this is revealed. There's strife and shenanigans. And by the end of the episode, the people of Springfield basically run the real Seymour Skinner out on a rail, declare that Armin Tanzarian actually is Seymour Skinner, and decree that nobody shall mention Armin Tanzarian ever again upon the threat of torture. It's a huge retcon of nine years of a supporting character's backstory that to fans of the show is really controversial. The Simpsons does love to have fun with its continuity or lack thereof, but even I remember side-eyeing this one back in the day. I've come to appreciate it a little bit more, mainly because I'm not as much of a continuity freak as I used to be, and also because, spoiler alert for anyone who's ever watched Mad Men, it's basically Don Draper's backstory. Anyway, Armin Tanzarian aside... 
The way that the show portrayed Skinner in Vietnam or dealing with Vietnam was so smartly written that more than 25 years later, it holds up incredibly well. In some instances, the writers were calling upon tropes that we've seen play out in serious ways in a number of movies and television shows, but the way they make Skinner a likable character and someone you do root for from time to time makes the bits and jokes about his experiences genuinely funny and not mean-spirited. Granted, I'm totally talking out of turn here and have no real experience to back this up, but what I'm going to do is play a few short clips so that you can hear it for yourself. I'm starting with this clip from the Season 3 episode, Bart's Friend Falls in Love. The context is that Skinner is meeting Samantha Stanky, who is going to wind up being the girl who comes between Bart and Milhouse. It quickly morphs into his anger over treatment after the war. Samantha, I've always been suspicious of transfer students. Other principals try to unload problem cases that way. <laughs> Lord knows I do. I'm a good student, Principal Skinner. Yeah, sure. And they told me I'd get a big parade when I got back from Nam. Instead, they spat on me. I can still feel it searing. So, let's just see what the permanent record has to say, shall we? Hmm, no detention. Fairly good attendance record. Oh, I see you beat that bedwetting problem in the second grade. That's in there? <laughs> Don't worry, they'll forget. Just like they forgot about me in that tiger cage for 18 agonizing months. Every night I wake up screaming. Well, let's meet your classmates. This next one is from Season 4's Lisa the Beauty Queen. It's less of a flashback and more of a demonstration that Skinner is more of a badass than he often lets on. Springfield Elementary is throwing a carnival and refer to it as the happiest place on earth. When copyright lawyers show up, Skinner gets real. Principal Skinner, the happiest place on earth is a registered Disneyland copyright. Well, gentlemen, it's just a small school carnival. And it's heading for a great big lawsuit. You made a big mistake, Skinner. Well, so did you. You got an ex-Green Beret mad. <laughs> <laughs> Copyright expired. This next clip is from another Season 4 episode, I Love Lisa, the episode that features Ralph Wiggum falling in love with Lisa when she gives him a Valentine's Day card that reads, I Chew Chew Choose You, and it has a picture of a train. One of the gags is the episode is that Bart is giving out candy hearts that are not exactly loving in their message, and this leads to, well, you'll hear it. Attention everyone, this is Principal Skinner. Some student, possibly Bart Simpson, has been circulating candy hearts featuring crude, off-color sentiments. Well, let me tell you something. Valentine's Day is no joke. Sending your chick a valentine, huh? Yep. This moment, by the way, actually did ruffle some people. According to the episode's Wikipedia page, after the episode aired, a Vietnam veteran sent in a letter to say to the show that read, quote, I was watching the Valentine's Day of episode of your cartoon, and I saw the horrifying Vietnam flashback. Do you really think this was funny, this horrible experience? The staff ignored the letter, and as Wes Archer pointed out, the scene was an obvious reference to Apocalypse Now, even featuring characters that resemble Chef, played by Frederick Forrest, and Mr. Clean, Lawrence Fishburne. 
In contrast, Mark Granig, the brother of Matt Granig, who uh, and Mark Granig was himself a Vietnam veteran, loved the sequence as well as the episode. Next up is a clip from Seasons 5, The Boy Who Knew Too Much. This is the one where Mayor Quimby's son, Freddie, is put on trial for allegedly beating up a waiter who couldn't pronounce chowda correctly. Bart witnesses what really happened, but he doesn't want to tell the truth because Skinner will know that he skipped school. By the way, this features one of the best chase scenes between Skinner and Bart. Homer winds up being on the jury and goes all 12 angry men because he wants them to be sequestered for as long as possible so he can take advantage of room service on the taxpayer's dime. And he rooms with Skinner, and we see Skinner having a Vietnam nightmare. On black pajamas, the choppers are coming over. Oh, and Cronkite's turning against us. Watch out, Lieutenant. The VC are coming. Open fire, man. Finally, there's my favorite of the Vietnam clips from the seventh season of the show, an episode called Team Homer. The main plot of this episode is Homer starting a bowling team, the Pin Pals. But the subplot is that Bart, after Bart causes havoc with a t-shirt that reads down with homework, Skinner imposes school uniforms. It's actually a brilliant satire on the issues of school dress codes and uniforms, but the clip I'm playing comes from the beginning. So, we meet again, Mad Magazine. How do you know it's for Mad? The year was 1968. We were on recon in a steaming Mekong Delta. An overheated private removed his flak jacket, revealing a t-shirt with an iron-on sporting the Mad slogan. Up with miniskirts. Well, we all had a good laugh, even though I didn't quite understand it. But our momentary lapse of concentration allowed Charlie to get the drop on us. I spent the next three years in a POW camp, forced to subsist on a thin stew made of fish, vegetables, prawns, coconut milk, and four kinds of rice. I came close to madness trying to find it here in the States, but they just can't get the spices right. Uh, my punishment? Hmm? Oh, I'm going to have to think about that. In some cases, these clips are more funny in context or where you have the visuals to accompany them. In other cases, like the last one, they're just funny on their own. Or maybe it's me who, just me who thinks the line, I came close to madness trying to find it in the States, but they just can't get the spices right, is absolutely brilliant. Other animated shows would use Vietnam or Vietnam vets for humor. I know that South Park has made its fair share of references, and I think it won at least one of the Seth MacFarlane shows probably has as well, although I admit I do like his work, and I wouldn't know because I don't watch it. But what The Simpsons does, at least in my mind, is give us some well-written and well-executed executed jokes and lines that, yes, are sometimes dark, but also do a good job parodying the troops of nom-related popular culture. In the end, I guess it's whether or not it's humorous or there is any humor to be found in this war or any war is a matter of taste, but I did want to take at least some time in an episode to highlight another way popular culture has approached Vietnam over the years. I'll be back next time with a look at the final part of the Beginning of the End trilogy with issue 81 of the NOM. I'll take a look at some more of the events of 1973. Until then, check me out on Twitter at popaff. that's P-O-P-A-F-F. Leave a review in iTunes, and as always, thanks for listening. And take care. You have reached the end of another episode of In Country. All stories and characters are copyright Marvel Comics, and all other media referenced are copyright their respective copyright holders and are used for review and illustrative purposes only. Feedback can be sent to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com, and you can follow the podcast at facebook.com slash incountrypodcast. Show notes and extras can be found at popcultureaffidavit.com. 
This podcast is a proud part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which is a division of the Demanzacore of Milan, Italy. Please support this podcast and all the other Two True Freaks podcasts by using the Amazon.com link at TwoTrueFreaks.com anytime you shop. It costs you no extra money, but really helps us all out. Thank you for listening, and join me next time for the latest chapter in the saga of The Nom. Tired everybody on the street. Tired everybody on the street.